Outer space. When I think about it, the feeling that I get is of this quiet, deep expanse. A place that feels very different than our bustling and very busy and chaotic planet. But a new discovery about the fabric of space-time has totally upended that picture in my head. So imagine for a moment that as you're sitting here looking around the room, everything around you, including your own body, is ever so subtly being pulled and stretched by waves moving through the fabric of the cosmos. That's Victoria Jaggard, a deputy health and science editor at The Post. And she's been reporting on this major scientific breakthrough. Scientists now have compelling evidence of the existence of this thing called a gravitational wave background. And this finding has astrophysicists buzzing. It's not going to change the price of potatoes in the morning. It doesn't cure any deadly diseases. Your, your everyday existence isn't necessarily going to change. But I think it's amazingly cool whenever we can have one of these moments where we're basically rewriting our fundamental understanding of how the universe works. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, July 7th. Today, we are going to space. Victoria explains this important finding about space-time and why, even though this discovery might not change your everyday life, it could shape our collective future. Victoria, before we get started, let's help listeners and and myself, let's be honest, (laughs) who might be struggling with the concept of space-time. That's space-time. So what is space-time exactly? Humans, I think, are pretty comfortable with the concept of three dimensions, right? Like, I can jump up, I can fall down, I can wiggle in my seat from side to side. That part's not so hard to comprehend. And so for the longest time, our best mathematical descriptions of how the universe works were based in solidly three dimensions, and time was a whole separate thing. Uh, In the way that the universe works in classical mechanics, the the math of Isaac Newton, there are ups and downs, x and y and z axis. There's a universe that is basically flat and static. Gravity, in his view, was an attractive force between massive objects. And time was a whole separate thing, and it was completely constant no matter what anyone did. Mm. And so along comes Einstein and says, hold the phone. There are things about classical mechanics that work great at human scales, and then when you start looking outward into the cosmos, there's stuff that it can't explain. Stuff like Mercury orbiting around the sun in ways that we are not accurately predicting. How do we explain this? And it's actually one of the most exciting moments in science when the universe starts behaving badly, because that means there's a missing piece of the puzzle out there just waiting to be discovered. Yeah, I love the idea, by the way, of thinking of the universe as behaving badly. Uh, But Victoria, what exactly does that mean? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes my touchstone is like space movies. And this sort of makes me think a little bit of that movie Interstellar. Is that right? Well, don't get mad. I did not love Interstellar. 
Um, but it is one of the most accurate representations of the effects of Einstein's view of how the universe works. Look, I, I could swing around that neutron star to decelerate. No, 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 it's not that. It's time. The gravity on that planet will slow our clock compared to Earth's drastically. Well, how bad? Well, every hour we spend on that planet will be seven years back on Earth. Well, that's relativity, folks. Because what Einstein said was, it, it's not just three dimensions, it's actually four. You have to work time in with space and mm-hmm. turn it basically into this fabric that can be warped and rippled by objects within it. So the the common analogy that people use when trying to describe space-time is to think of, like, the, the stretchy sheet on a trampoline. Mm-hmm. And you put a bowling ball on a trampoline, and that sheet bends. It warps. You roll that bowling ball around, and it ripples. So in a sense, you can say Earth is kind of like that bowling ball, and that trampoline sheet is space-time. It's just, you know... In every direction that you could possibly look at the planet, it's rolling around and warping that fabric. And that's what we actually perceive as gravity. And mm-hmm. so Interstellar takes this into account very well because they talk about the fact that massive, really, really massive objects, supermassive black holes, will warp the fabric of space and time so that time is no longer constant. Like we imagined in classical mechanics, that can change too. So was it Einstein who came up with the concept of space-time? Well, there's a lot of scientists who can be credited in the big history of figuring out this concept. Uh, But most famously, it was Einstein who put it all together into mathematical equations and published papers in the early 1900s that laid out uh, both a special theory of relativity and a general theory of relativity that mathematically describe how all of this is supposed to work. Okay, so, Victoria, tell us then what happened this summer. What was this new finding regarding space-time? Last month was very exciting because a group of scientists who have been working on this problem for a very long time finally announced that they believe they've got evidence for what they're calling the gravitational wave background. So, wait, Victoria, can you just break down for me what are gravitational waves? Gravitational waves, it's an interesting concept. You have to start with wrapping your mind around the fact that the universe is not just the, the empty space that you see around you. That the physical reality we all inhabit is a four-dimensional continuum <laughs> that has been dubbed space-time. It's a, a combination of the three dimensions of space and the one dimension of time. And you can best think of it like a fabric or like a thin rubber sheet. And if you drop something heavy onto that sheet, like a bowling ball, it warps it. And if you spin a couple heavy things around each other on that sheet, it generates ripples as if you had dropped a pebble in a still pond. And those ripples uh, in the context of space-time are what we call gravitational waves. They are waves of gravitation that are actually rippling the very fabric of the cosmos. And so then how do gravitational waves become part of our background? Like, I'm assuming that's what gravitational wave background is, right? 
Exactly. That that is a correct assumption. Gravitational waves the the detection of gravitational waves, we know that they exist because we were able to detect the the crest of a gravitational wave passing through the earth from a very specific cosmic event, the merger of two black holes. And that's great for confirmation that it's happening. Um, but what other scientists wanted to, to look at is through the course of the history of the universe, stuff like that must have been happening all the time. There's so many massive objects and so many opportunities for these waves to be generated. Shouldn't the whole universe be just constantly rippling? And that is exactly what these scientists think that they have discovered, that the whole universe is like a choppy sea being constantly rippled by gravitational waves coming from all kinds of events happening throughout the history of the universe. So would it almost be like, you know, when I look at the ocean, and I'm a very, very beginner amateur surfer, but I, I look at the waves, and it sounds like what you're saying is, yes, scientists had previously confirmed there are waves, like there could be a wave, it exists, but it's quite another thing to look out and see consistent waves, consistent action in the ocean, and that's what they've discovered. That is exactly right. It It's wonderful to be able to say, look, we've got this one event, and that confirms a theory. It's another thing to actually think about the whole cosmos being constantly shook by gravitational forces. Now, we, we knew already that gravitational waves were a thing. They were predicted by Einstein's theories, and then they were directly detected. Uh, that was announced. They were detected in 2015, and they were announced in 2016 by an experiment called LIGO, a massive experiment uh, and a lot of time to collect enough data. But in 2016, this LIGO experiment announced... Ladies and gentlemen, we have detected gravitational waves. We did it. Last month, a group of scientists got together and said, it's not enough just to know that they're real and that they happen from these one-off events. According to these theories, there's a lot of really massive stuff, much, much more massive than these black holes out there in the universe. And over the course of, you know, 13 billion plus years, plenty of things must have been happening to generate lots and lots of gravitational waves that we should, in theory, be able to detect. The mm -hmm. problem being that just like any kinds of waves, we talk about frequency, right? So a high-frequency wave will have a pretty compressed crest. You'll, you'll really be able to tell that it's happening because it'll be a big up and a big down. These low-frequency waves, it, it's a much more subtle effect, and it'll take a lot longer to tell that something is happening because it's a, an elongated sort of slope, basically, in the crest of the wave. Mm -hmm. So what these scientists did, they turned outward to what are known as pulsars. And what are pulsars? Pulsars, the reason they have that name is because these are the cores of collapsed stars. These are very, very massive stars that at the end of their lives just imploded, basically. And what was left behind is this rapidly spinning, very dense core that's emitting pulses of radio waves from its poles. And those radio waves, as the pulsar spins, are sweeping the cosmos like the beam of a lighthouse. And so wow. we can detect that from Earth. We can pick up on those radio pulses, and they are so steady. 
they are approaching the accuracy of some of the best atomic clocks that we've managed to create here on Earth. So it's a ridiculously accurate way of saying, okay, something out there is pulsing at a very steady pace. We can absolutely predict that it's going to happen at this rate. And we feel really good about that. So the pulsars, would it be fair to think of them almost like instruments that scientists are using to detect waves? Absolutely. You can think of them kind of like cosmic timepieces. So were they monitoring these pulsars? And how long did they do this for? And then what was their conclusion? There's a team, there was actually multiple teams around the world that all came to the the same conclusion that you can use pulsars and say, if these beams are so precise and so accurate, if there's gravitational waves just sort of churning up the fabric of space-time all over the place, then we should be able to see ever so slight changes in the arrival of those pulses here on Earth. Such, such a subtle effect, though, that they had to collect data on multiple pulsars. Uh, I think the the team in North America that was uh, leading this charge, Nanohertz, the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, or Nanograv, is a team, uh, a whole collaboration of scientists in North America that looked at a total of 68 pulsars over the course of 15 years to be able to detect this effect. And there were other teams in Europe, China, India, Australia, who were in a race to use their radio telescopes to do the exact same thing, look at the timing of these pulsars. So Mm. collecting lots and lots of data over very long timescales. And after the first five to ten years, they started to get some really interesting signals and started to think, hey, maybe we're on to something. But it took 15 years for them to be able to say with confidence, this is it, y'all. We think we got it. We're here today to mark the occasion of the publication of new results from the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves. Of course, we're also here just to celebrate a remarkable scientific achievement that's been 15 years in the making. And so when they were measuring these pulsars and the disruption in their very precise timing, how big of a disruption did their timing have? Were they off by, like, a second or, like, half a second? Oh, it's so much smaller than that. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) The, The objects that they are looking at, they're called millisecond pulsars because they're spinning so rapidly that the pulses are arriving in the space of thousandths of a second. And they're looking for incredibly subtle changes to something that's already spinning that fast. So it is just an incredibly, incredibly subtle signal. And is that why it took them so long to monitor them? It is. So it it took a long time, both because the frequency of the waves that they were looking for means that it just takes a very long time for the wave to move through a particular region of space. But also they wanted to collect enough data on these pulsars to really separate anything that could be seen as noise in the data from what they believe is the signal of the gravitational wave. After the break, Victoria explains the mystery behind these waves and what that might tell us about the way the universe works. We'll be right back. Hey there. 
I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I have to ask, what are causing the waves themselves? Do scientists know? Oh, they don't know for sure. So the interesting thing with LIGO is they were able to actually pinpoint an event and say, look, there was a merger of two relatively lightweight black holes that we can link to this gravitational wave detection. And that's so cool that they're actually able to back that up and say that thing over there caused this thing over here. Mm-hmm. The challenge with this current detection of this gravitational wave background is it's a background, and it's coming from some kind of chaotic, violent event that happened over the course of the lifetime of the universe, but actually pinpointing it is going to be more of a challenge. That said, the scientists do have some theories, and their leading candidate for what could be causing this background is another form of black hole merger, but this is on a whole other level. These are supermassive black holes. And as my brilliant co-author on this story, uh, Joel Achenbach, wrote, they earned their supermassive title. (laughs) Yeah, what is supermassive? I mean, already you described a black hole. What is a supermassive black hole? Now we're talking millions to billions times the mass of the sun. I mean, my mind can't even really wrap itself around. <laughs> exactly. It, it's it's a little bit bordering on the incomprehensible because these things too, they're not actually that big in the grand scheme of things. Because black holes are are like pulsars. They're what's left behind when very, very massive stars collapse in on themselves. And if they continue collapsing, they collapse into a singular dense point that is the singularity of a black hole. It's so dense that when we talk about black holes, the most common description is you you reach a point near it called the event horizon where it's so dense, not even light can escape. Everything just falls into it. And so supermassive black holes, these are the ones that are thought to exist in the cores of galaxies. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, has a supermassive black hole. We've nicknamed it Sagittarius A star right at its center. And again, these are millions to billions of times the mass of the sun, but compressed into a relatively small area. So then how could supermassive black holes disrupt space-time? With supermassive black holes, when over the the lifetime of the universe, galaxies get close to each other and sometimes collide. Um, this We know this can happen. We know it may even happen to us someday when we collide with our neighbor, the Andromeda Galaxy. Added to the list of, yeah, sorry. of things to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, existential dread aside, it's not going to happen for a really, really, really long time. Okay, good. <laughs> and when it does happen, it, galaxy collisions, it, it sounds... Like a lot, but it's usually, I mean, there's a lot of space in galaxies, and it takes a while for individual objects to actually meet each other. Mm. But as they get closer and closer, as the cores are falling toward each other, they start to orbit each other in what's called a, a black hole binary. And this binary pair, they're doing this swirling gravitational dance, and they're inching closer and closer as energy is leaking out in the form of these gravitational waves. And 
eventually they get so close that they merge. And as they're nearing that sort of merger, that's when they're creating the kind of low-frequency waves that are disrupting our pulsar signals and that we have just recently think we're close to being able to properly detect. So is it also fair to think of this as the detection of these gravitational waves tells us that there are indeed at least one or maybe many of these sorts of uh, events and violent events that have occurred in the in the history of the universe? Yeah, and I will say, too, the scientists, they're very careful at this stage of the game to say they don't have a detection. They're making a claim. They They have very compelling evidence. That's the phrase they used repeatedly. They have very compelling evidence that this gravitational wave background is real. What they're most excited about Like I mentioned earlier, there's a bunch of teams who have been collecting data on pulsars for a very long time. What they really want to do is combine all of that data and really comb through it and get a proper, clear, clear signal that this gravitational background is real. They think that could happen very soon, maybe within the next year or two. Mm. And that would really cement exactly that idea that everywhere across the cosmos, through the history of time, There have been these violent sorts of collisions. Galaxies have merged, black holes have danced around each other, and gravitational waves have been sent out in all directions. Yeah, because if you have multiple teams around the world who are basically detecting the same thing or they're compiling all of their data and they do it like a meta-analysis or whatever you want to call it, I mean, that just really bolsters beyond a claim and it really becomes solid evidence, right? Exactly. That's what they're hoping for. Okay, Victoria, I have to ask you, how does, and I'm sorry if everyone's asking you this question, is time travel on the table with any of this? How does time travel relate to this discovery? (laughs) Uh, It doesn't really. Uh, (laughs) This doesn't really say anything about the ability to travel through time and it, it, it's it's a lovely concept, and I think it's exciting to think about the concept of space and time and think about the fact that these things exist means that there are a lot of things that we still don't really understand about how the universe works. Mm-hmm. And studying these really extreme events, one of the things that we hope to get out of it is a better understanding of what we don't know. What are the missing puzzle pieces, and are there exotic new forms of physics out there that can help us better understand our own reality and our own place in the universe. And yeah, maybe Mm -hmm. there's some practical implications that'll come out of that. We'll get some really, you know, kick-butt new type of computer or something. But in the grand scheme of things, it's really just about, I think, those profound questions of existence. Right. Why are we here? What are we doing? Who are we? And are we alone? Yeah, that's a big one. Are we alone? You know, Victoria, this also, to me, makes me feel like, you know, we're sitting in 2023. As humans, we've uh, rapidly ad- uh, advanced technologically speaking. You know, we we not only have, like, the internet and smartphones, but now there's, like, talk of generative AI and all of these things. But there is still a lot we do not know for certain about our just physical and material reality. And we may be operating under certain theories like this one for a while, but now that it's been proven, it just makes me wonder what else do we not know yet? And I wonder for you, how did this discovery make you feel? That is such a beautiful way of putting it. It, It's so amazing 
to know there are things out there that we just don't know yet because we want to be able to discover. It's a, I think, to me, a fundamental part of what gets me out of bed in the morning is curiosity. I love learning about how the universe works. It's part of what drew me to this job of reporting on science in the first place. And I think for scientists, it's much the same. It's just a drive and a curiosity to understand the world around you. And so having something like this, where you've got a long-standing theory, like over a century of science saying this should be true, to actually be able to say, yes, in fact, we think we've got it, it it's awe-inspiring and sometimes a little tear-inducing just to contemplate. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for not just explaining all of this, but really putting it into perspective for all of us. Thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so much. Victoria Jaggard is a deputy health and science editor at The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Gabe O'Connor. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Stranofsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Tanya Chavla. I'm Elahe Izadi. A heads up, we are going to be dropping a special episode on Saturday. And then we'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>